0: This is part one of Unconditional Election, and we'll be covering pages 1 through 4 and pages 8 and 9 uh, this week. And, uh, Lord willing, we'll get to the other pages uh, next week. Uh, but uh, i began begun by providing a, um, an excerpt from our doctrinal statement, which is called What We Teach, And it's uh, the excerpt that specifically deals with the doctrine of election. And what I did as I went through this is I asterisked all the different phrases that are so critical to understanding the doctrine of election. And there's at least a dozen of of expressions that I've asterisked. We teach that election is an act of God, number one. So we have to begin with that, that uh, this is something that uh, the God himself does, which before the foundation of the world, I asked to that. So that goes to the fact that the election of the God, that the, the act that he does is pre-temporal. It precedes time. And uh, we, we talk about time. This is before time. This is before the foundation of the world. Thirdly, he chose, that's the act that he does. He, he's choosing. And in, in, who does he, in, in fact, that he chooses us in Christ. That's of fundamental importance, that our identity is that we are chosen in Christ. Matter of fact, the scriptures identify believers as those who are in Christ. That's the, the expression that almost universally is used, that, that our identity is we are In Christ. All the riches that we have are because we are in Christ. Those whom, then I answer, is He graciously, and then all of the things that He does that are consequential to election. What does He do? He regenerates, He saves, He sanctifies. All of those are the outworking of God's election. And then there are a number of passages, and we'll look at at several of these. But Romans 8, 28 to 30 is what many people call the golden chain, which talks about the outworking of God's work of salvation, which began in eternity past and, and literally extends to eternity future, whereby he chooses us and ultimately glorifies us. And all of this is because we are in Christ. Second paragraph We teach that sovereign election, and I ask to resist, does not contradict nor negate the responsibility of man to repent and trust Christ as Savior and Lord. So the fact that we affirm, because the scripture affirms, unconditional election does not negate the responsibility of man to repent, to confess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But then we go on to say, nevertheless, since sovereign grace and I ask to assist includes the means of receiving the gift of salvation as well as the gift itself, and and the point being there is that even the faith that is necessary to appropriate the saving work of Christ is itself a gift. It's not something that is mustered up on our own initiative. Matter of fact, as we have seen and looking at total inability or total depravity or radical corruption, whatever term we want to use, there is nothing in us that either has the propensity or inclination or the capacity to believe or to even seek after God. There's none that would do that. And so the means are all gifts as well, uh, faith. And sovereign election uh, will result in what God determines. Then I all and I asked her, sat, all whom the Father calls to Himself will come in faith, and all and I asked her, sat, who come in faith, the Father will receive. So, when, as we'll see, the election of God is not um, inconsequential; it is efficacious. It is um, it is inevitably going to result in the in the end to which God has ordained from eternity past, and that is to populate heaven with the trophies of His grace, His elect. So the gift of faith and the outworking of faith and the growth in Christ that occurs inevitably will happen without fail because it's an act of God. And God's purposes don't fail. And this third paragraph goes to the very essence of what we mean by unconditional election. There are those who hold to election And as we'll see, there are varieties of views on this, and there would be a view that that I think we could fairly characterize as conditional election, and we'll differentiate that from unconditional election. But the essence of unconditional election is in this third paragraph. We teach that the unmerited favor of God grants to totally depraved sinners, and that expression is what we spent a couple of weeks dealing with in terms of total inability key concept, and I asterisk this, is not related to any initiative of their own part or to God's anticipation of what they might do by their own will. That's 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 really the, the very kernel, the, the core of what we mean by unconditional election. There's nothing in the object of God's electing decree that would that he foresees in the way of looking down the proverbial tunnel of time and anticipating that there will be a favorable response and therefore he chooses to save that that particular individual. That's contrary to what the scripture teaches. But it is solely, entirely, unequivocally of his sovereign grace and mercy. We teach that election should not be looked on as based merely on abstract sovereignty. God and I asked her this is truly sovereign. When we are talking about the doctrine of election, it is impossible, I think, to come to any kind of a biblical view of election without affirming God's sovereignty. Any view of, of election that is conditional actually undermines God's sovereignty, and, and I would argue, and others would as well, that it would undermine the assurance of faith that someone would have because it makes salvation conditional upon something within us and we've affirmed all the way along even when we were talking about the the solas of the reformation the the, the truth of monergism the fact that that salvation is from start to finish a work of god it, it has it's not synergistic synergistic means that there's a cooperative effort between the benefactor and the, and the recipient uh, are uh, partners in, in grace. So there's no, there's no partnership. It is entirely a work of God. Salvation is of God. But God is truly sovereign. He exercises this sovereignty in harmony with his other attributes, especially his omniscience, justice, holiness, wisdom, grace, and love. Now, when we say that he exercises this sovereignty in harmony with his omniscience, we are not saying that his omniscience is the, the the aspect of his character that conditions his election. We're not saying that because God is omniscient and he knows all things that, that can take place and do take place and will take place without fail, uh, he knows all of those things perfectly, comprehensively, but that's not why he elects. He, he elects because it pleases him, uh, because it, it, it brings pleasure to god that's that's the the bottom line on unconditional election this sovereignty and and this is the, the key here i asterisk this expression as well this sovereignty will always exalt the will of god in a manner totally consistent with his character as revealed in the life of our lord jesus christ and and so when we talk about the offer of the gospel, for instance, we, we've talked about total inability and evangelism. We did that last last time. Uh, and election is it falls into the same, um, same umbrella, so to speak. And there's a, actually an article at the very end of your handout that deals with evangelistic fervor and the doctrine of, of unconditional election. And if anything, um, a, a, an embracing of the truth of unconditional election will fuel... Um, a desire to evangelize, a passion to evangelize. It will not be uh, something that is a detriment or a, dis, a disincentive uh, to evangelizing by, by any stretch. So that's, that's our doctrinal statement. And everything that I will be teaching and, and even the articles that I have provided for you are all entirely consistent with what I have just read. So what we're teaching is, I could be fairly described as a reformed view of unconditional or sovereign election. So what is sovereign election or an unconditional election? And I have a, a, an excerpt from an article by, by R.C. Sproul. Um, and in, in many ways this simply affirms and amplifies what I've just read to you from our doctrinal statement, what we teach, But God does not foresee an action or condition on our part. He does Foresee what we will do. He, he does know that. But the key is, he does not foresee something on our part that induces him to save us. He does know what we will do. But we, what we will do, he knows because he ordained that that will take place. He knows that there will be those who will respond to the gospel. Only the elect will respond positively, savingly to the gospel. Without fail, anyone who is elect will respond savingly to the gospel no one who is not elect will respond savingly to the gospel and that's that's because the elements the means of salvation are all part of the grace that is is extended including saving faith and and we'll get to the efficacious grace the the irresistible call all of these are, are the outworking of god's decrees election rests on God's sovereign decision to save whomever he is pleased to save. Now there are those and and I I won't say I sympathize with it but I can understand the reticence of some and, and I've known some some men that have really balked at the doctrine of unconditional election and we'll look at the objections next week but there are those who say well that sometimes you hear the expression God doesn't have any robots uh, it, it, god doesn't want to violate our will well the reality is that none of us have a will that would be inclined to the gospel that's that's uh, the, the the scripture itself says that there is none that seeks after god there's, there's none and and all have become sinners all, all, all are fallen all are totally depraved so there's nothing within any of us and there has never been anything within any of humanity. To, to respond to the gospel, uh, apart from the initiative on God's part to, to bring that to pass. So it, it, Sproul goes to Romans 9, and Romans 9, it, it, in some pulpits, the, this is a section of Scripture that, that people struggle with, but it, it, all of Scripture is profitable for teaching, approved, correction, and training in righteousness that we might be equipped for every good work. And there, there are challenging sections of Scripture, in Romans 9 is... Possibly one of those, but in Romans nine, verses ten through thirteen, when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, this is the child of promise, Isaac, and though they were not yet born, so you've got Isaac and his his brother, and had done nothing either good or bad. So here's something that's going to happen before they're born, and before they've done anything. Why? In order, and this is verse eleven of Romans nine in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, and this violates the very order, the very tradition of what would be um, the the case, the the older one, the the firstborn, would inevitably be the one that would receive the birthright, the, the one that would be in the privileged estate in a family. That doesn't mean that the other children were loved or anything of that nature, but the firstborn, the eldest, was in a privileged position. But in this case, that was reversed. And why was that reversed? Because God ordained that it would be reversed. And it had nothing to do with anything that they had done because they hadn't done anything. They had never been born yet. And, and so here we have, uh, the, but then it goes on to say, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. And so Paul is giving us here, but he also provides this to us in Romans 8. And, and if you would, just turn in your scripture. I want you to see this um, with your own eyes in Romans 8, uh, 28 to 30. This is the, the golden chain, and, and we could easily spend an entire afternoon or two or three afternoons going through this this wonderful passage. But this is the outworking of God's saving uh, decree uh, Romans eight twenty-eight to thirty, and we know, and, and everyone here knows Romans eight twenty-eight. You, you may have this on your refrigerator. You may have it on some kind of a insert in your Bible. Everybody knows Romans eight twenty-eight, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now. You remember from your English class an apposition. This is something where expressions are parallel to each other and they complement each other. Who is it that loves God to those who are called according to his purpose, right? I mean, you remember that from your, your English class. This is an expression. We have one expression to those who love God, and then you've got a parallel expression that follows it to those who are called according to his purpose. If you're not, someone who is not called will not love God. Those who are called will love God. And why are they called? They're called according to his purpose. And sometimes we just breeze over these expressions, but but it's critical that we take time and we we look at the, the, the detail that Paul has provided for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For those whom he foreknew, and sometimes people will use this in a cognitive way, sort of precognition, where you're looking down and you know that something is going to happen in advance. So you, you know what number on the lottery is going to win, and so that's the number that you go. No, that's, that's not what happens. Uh, it, it, those whom he foreknew is because he had set his saving affections upon them. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And election and predestination are sort of two sides of the same coin. Predestination looks to the outworking, the purpose, the fruition of his, of his call. What, what has He predestined us to do? It talks about the end game, the, the, the objective of His calling. What has He predestined us to do? The fact that we're predestined is because He's elected us. His election is His choice. His predestination speaks of the, the, the end game, the, 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 the purpose for all of this. Well, what have we been predestined for? Um, to become conformed to the image of His Son. That's ultimately manifested in glorification when we are free from sin uh, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren and so what what the Lord is saying here uh, in the the words of Paul is that God has designed a a decree that would please him to call um, those who would ultimately love him who would be called according to his purpose so that heaven would be populated with men and women and boys and girls who would be Conformed to the image of his dear son, because he wants heaven to be absolutely full of those who are Christ like. And, and he's, he will ultimately bring that to pass. We'll be conformed to the image of his son. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed so that he would be the firstborn. And the, those whom he predestined, he called. And calling is this summons that is irresistible. Someone who is called will believe we'll get to that that's efficacious grace or irresistible call and these whom he called he also justified and so he's talking about Paul is talking about a a, a subset of humanity and someone would say how big is the subset I don't know it, it, as many as God has ordained a large number a great number a, a, a vast number I can't, I don't know the number God already knows the number because he's already determined what that number is we don't know But it's not complete yet because there are still men and women and boys and girls who are coming to faith in Christ. Um, And they will be justified. And what is justification? Justification is God forgiving us of our sins and counting us as righteous only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. And those who he justified, he also glorified. And and everyone sitting in this room that has trusted in Christ has been justified. That is an accomplished fact. That, that is God's declaration that he regards you as righteous in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.21. But you, you still battle with sin, Romans 7. None of us are accepted from that. One day, you will be free not only from the penalty of sin... And the power of sin and that's that's the condition that you're in right now, if you're a believer, but you will also be free from the very presence of sin, and that's glorification, and you should long for that day I do and and that's but that that day will come, and that's all the outworking, but it all begins with those who are called according to his purpose and his and the calling is the the, the summons uh, it's the work of the Holy Spirit that is irresistible, and who are called those who are called according to his purpose. And what is his purpose? This is Paul referring to the doctrine of election. So then what should we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? So this whole teaching on the doctrines of grace, um, tulip, whatever you want to call it, um, really should bolster your assurance because it will cause you to understand that even though you were not seeking God, even though you were running as hard and as fast and as far away from god as you could possibly run that god intervened in your life because he loved you and he set his affection upon you because it pleased him to do that and it had nothing to do with inherent attractiveness or worthiness on your part because none of us are inherently attractive or worthy but the, the, my purpose is not to diminish humanity my my purpose is to say what a great god that we have that he would rescue us from hell and, and because he just loved us in eternity past every single one in Christ is the, the, the beneficiary of his saving purpose and, and, and that's, so it's the outworking of all that he's done and that's, that's really what this article by R.C. Sproul is, is talking about so the third paragraph down on page two on what basis why does God elect to save certain people is it on the basis of some foreseen reaction, response, or activity of the elect? Okay, you can stop there. If your answer to that would be affirmative, yes, then you would be subscribing to something that would be called conditional election. But he goes on to say, many people who have a doctrine of election or predestination look at it this way, and they do. It's, it's a very common perception. They believe that in eternity past, God looked down through the corridors of time, and he knew in advance who would say yes to the offer of the gospel and who would say no? And he does know in advance who will say, But he knows in advance, as we'll see, in, because he's ordained that. On the basis of this prior knowledge, that's the key expression. On the basis of this prior knowledge, he elects to save. That's, that's really the condition that makes election conditional. This expression on the basis of his prior knowledge, that makes his election conditional upon something that we do. This is conditional election, which means that God distributes his electing grace on the basis of a foreseen condition that human beings meet themselves. That's not what the Bible teaches. That, that's why Paul in Romans 9 was talking about the fact that God reversed the, the order of blessing in his family, completely turned it upside down, because it pleased him. Uh, and the, the eldest will serve the younger. And uh, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate him. Why did he say that? Because it pleased him to, to, to say that. Unconditional election, next paragraph. He says there's a term that I think can be a bit misleading, so I, I prefer to use the term sovereign election. And then that's, I think that's a, a wise thing. So there's a question that he asks. Is, is there any violation of justice in this? And we'll delve into this a little more. But the answer to that in, in Romans 9, verse 14, is, is no. So, a matter of fact, if you want to flip over, uh, you were in Romans 8 just a moment ago. Um, but go to Romans 9, and I want you to see uh, just briefly. Um, in verse 14, what shall we say then? And this this is a follow on to verse thirteen, which is Jacob I love, but Esau I hate. It. What's our response? Uh, is there is no injustice with God? Is there? And some of your Bibles may have it translated. Is there any injustice with God? But the the way it's constructed is the answer would be negative. And and the response that is given under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is one of the strongest expressions that, that could possibly be mustered. And if you're Uh, a a reader in the king james it probably says god forbid uh may it never be uh it is beyond any discussion whatsoever that there would be injustice with god so all of this goes to the very character of god there is nothing in god's character that we would call into question and for he says to moses i will have mercy on whom i have mercy well, that, that's God's prerogative, is it not, that he can have mercy on whom he has mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not, verse 16, depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. In other words, it does not depend on human initiative or human works or human activity, but upon a merciful God. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and to demonstrate that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole. Why did God raise up Pharaoh to condemn him, to make him an instrument of his wrath, to accomplish his saving purpose? Despite Pharaoh's hateful initiative to keep Israel in bondage, God raised up Pharaoh to show who was God, And, and he demonstrated beyond any doubt whatsoever who was God? It's not Pharaoh, it's him. It's God. And, and God raised up Pharaoh to, to condemn him, to, to destroy him, to defeat him, to make him an instrument of his judgment. That's what the scripture says. So that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole world, the whole earth. So then he, God, has mercy on whom he desires. And he hardens whom he desires. And then there's a question, verse 19. And and so someone in the back of the room is is raising their hand and they're saying... Why does he find fault? Who, who resists as well? In other words, are we automatons? Are we robots? Are we just, is this some fatalistic view? And the, even the spirit of the question is ruled out of order. That's really the answer that's given. That, that question that you're raising shows an attitude of rebellion against God himself. That's, that's really what Paul is saying. On the contrary, who are you, oh man, who answers back to God? And so we have to constantly remind ourselves, that God is God and he's the creator and we are the created and it is his prerogative to have mercy upon him whom he will have mercy and if that strikes us as unrighteous that's because our heart is not inclined towards God's heart because we're questioning the very veracity the very kindness the very righteousness of God and it might fall within our disposition to question the, the righteousness of God but that's not a righteous attitude it's not holy to call into God's to call into question God's righteousness, it is not. That, that, that's Paul's answer. That, that question, he says, is who are you to to even ask that question to God? And because that question is literally shaking your fist in the very face of God, it's it's saying, God, you are not righteous. You are not just. You are not God. It's imposing our standard of righteousness and propriety above god's standard it really is and, and and i think we need to acknowledge that that when we call into question what it is that god does that's not our prerogative that we're not entitled to do that uh, it, it, we are or, or at least to sit in judgment on why god does these things and there are all sorts of questions that we have in life uh, but it's one thing to ask the question but it's another thing to ask it in such a way that we're calling into question his the propriety of what god does and we're not entitled to to challenge the propriety of God. We can ask questions, but we can never sit in judgment on God. And that's that's really what Paul is saying. It's just a difficult chapter. and Some people, some pastors really don't like to go to Romans 9, but it's 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 a very important chapter because it goes to the sovereignty of God. And so he says unconditional election, it can be it can be a different subject, but he asks these questions if God allows sinners to perish, is he treating them unjustly? This is the middle of the last paragraph. And the answer is, of course not. If, if God allows sinners to perish, is he treating them unjustly? And the answer to that is no, because they have violated God's law. And he, is the judge of all creation, is not only entitled to judge, but he must judge because that's inherent in his very character. In, in no way can he commute his judgment, or lessen his judgment, because that would violate his infinite standard of holiness and righteousness and justice. He can extend mercy, but mercy never compromises justice. I think we need to acknowledge that. The fact that that we're sitting here as beneficiaries of God's saving grace does not is it, an act of God's mercy. It's an act of God's grace. If God were only just, none of us would be saved, because none of us deserve his, his His salvation. Justice would require that we all stand condemned before the 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 court of God. The fact that that God has extended mercy to to us required that His justice be satisfied. Romans tells us that God might be just and justifier. How can God be just and justifier? Because the Son of God stood in the place of sinners and took the condemnation that was not his to bear, but, but it's ours to bear. And he took it upon himself, not because he deserved it, but because we deserve it. And he took it out of complete obedience and submission to the sovereign decree of God to save some. And, and that's why we're saved, because God has in no way compromised his infinite justice he sent jesus the suffering servant he laid upon jesus the iniquity of of us all who were in christ and so even though we would not have sought god he sought us and he satisfied his justice and so for us to ask a question is it not right of god to condemn the sinners the answer to that is it's entirely within his right to condemn sinners Who is saved? Those who fall under the blood of Christ. Who comes under the blood of Christ? Those who are elect. Because they they submit themselves to the the purposes of of Christ. Why do they do that? Because God determined in eternity past that it would be so. That's unconditional election. William Perkins, page 3. William Perkins, uh, 1558 to 1602. Um... One of the pivotal characters uh, in the the Puritan uh, movement, Uh, this is an excerpt from something that he wrote. Election is God's decree whereby of his own free will he has predestined certain men to salvation to the praise of the glory of his name. Ephesians 1, 4 to 6. And it's far from being a tangential doctrine. It is the golden thread that runs throughout the whole Christian system. Election is the friend of sinners, a most blessed doctrine. There might be some of you who, are, who have listened to what I've just said over the last several minutes and said, man, this is, this is a difficult thing to hear. It should be a comforting thing to hear that God of his own initiative would set his saving mercies upon you, that he would rescue you from judgment. That he would determine because it pleased him. Not because there was anything in us, but because it pleased him. Not because we deserved it. We did not deserve it. But because it pleased him to rescue undeserving sinners from judgment. And because his purposes are never thwarted, he never loses his own. Jesus said, no one can snatch them them out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. When we get to the doctrine of the design of the atonement, we'll learn that the atonement was not designed to be provisional. It was actual It actually saves. It just doesn't create a basis upon salvation can be effected. It actually saved those for whom Christ came to, to die. And so, if anything, these doctrines should cause you to sleep well at night knowing that God himself has ordained in eternity past that you would be a beneficiary of his saving purposes. Election is God's positive choice by his sheer sovereignty and out of his grace to love some for salvation it is in no way universal or general if that were the case all would be saved and we know from the scripture that not all will be saved there's a wide gate and a narrow gate there will be many who will say to to him on that day lord lord did i not do this did i not do that and and he will say to them on that day depart from me you wicked i never knew you the 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 wide gate is, is there are many who find the wide gate and there are few that find the narrow gate I don't know how many are few, and I don't know how many are many, but I, I know that there's only two destinies. And and so it, it, it is not universal, for God did not ordain all mankind to be reconciled to himself. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. That's what we just saw in Romans 8. And he used, the, the foreknew is used in the sense of choosing or ordaining people. Because many have wrongly attributed divine knowledge of man's future faith as a causative of God's decree it is essential to note that god's wise foreknowledge is both free and logically secondary to his willful ordination what that's saying is that god does in fact know in advance what will take place but his his precognition his omniscience his knowing down the the tunnel of time what will take place is secondary to the fact that he has ordained it he's caused it to happen and therefore because he's caused it to happen he knows it will happen because his purposes are never defeated before the foundation of the world God singled out and appointed some to salvation 2 Thessalonians 2:13 He did not appoint those whom he foreknew He did not appoint those whom he foreknew would be conformed to Christ rather he those whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to his own image Christ is the whole foundation of election. And, and this is an interesting point. It's, it's worth noting. Christ is not subordinate to the Father in regard to the decree, since he decreed all things with the Father. In John 15, 16, the Lord Jesus says all those... Uh, well, let me, let me just read it for you. I, I want you to, to get this accurately. Because the Lord Jesus has decreed this as well. It, this is an act of the triune God when we're talking about this work of salvation you did not choose me the lord jesus is saying but i chose you the son was not subordinate to the father in the decree of election because he elected right along with the father so that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain and that whatever you ask my name he may give to you okay and so but he was subservient, he was subordinate to the Father in the outworking of this. He, was, he obeyed his Father perfectly. He obeyed the Father perfectly. And we talked about this uh, in, in Isaiah 50. Uh, and, and we have this suffering servant who absolutely perfectly, with no uh, hesitancy, uh, no resistance whatsoever, um, joyfully um, obeyed his Father, submitted to his Father. Philippians 2 talks about that. He did not regard equality with God a thing to grasp, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And, uh, and, and so he, the, the, the Son of God subordinated himself to the Father for purposes of effecting the purposes of election. And election, he goes on to say, can never be separated from Christ as the elect have this status only in Christ. All of the benefits that flow from election, what benefits flow from election? Just, regeneration? Uh, justification? Sanctification, glorification. All of those benefits flow from election. Every single one of them. Why? Because election is a decree of God in eternity past to, to conform guilty sinners to the image of his son. And how does that happen? It only happens by guilty sinners receiving a new heart, because that's the only way they can respond. So a new heart. And and for them to be admitted into God's holy heaven they have to be declared righteous and, and free of sin free of the guilt of sin and that's justification and they have to be progressively conformed not only in a judicial decree but in their experience to the character of christ and that's sanctification and ultimately that sanctification will be complete and that's glorification and every single thing that i've just said is an outworking of god's elective decree in eternity past it's all in christ all the riches that we have are in christ the father sees us in christ that's why, uh, he goes on to say, any who struggle with understanding this doctrine must be brought to view election as in Christ, for in him all those are chosen of God. Those whom God has elected to inherit eternal life, he has ordained the means by which they, these things are ordained. And that's what I just said. These these steps are calling regeneration, justification, sanctification, glorification. So." That's that's what unconditional election is is all about. Now, if you'll go over to page eight in your notes, I will get as far as I can get in the last five minutes here today. But this comes from a um, a workbook that uh, our good friend Jerry Marshall at New Community put together uh, in teaching the doctrines of grace. So I I've, I've credited him with this, but. If you want to know what the scripture says about election, and we've already looked at Romans 8, we looked at Romans 9. Uh, But this is, I want you to understand that all of this is the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The provisions, and this is Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. The provisions of the Father are found in verses 3 through 6. And our pastor has gone through this passage with you. I commend Uh, you find the the messages on sermon audio and ephesians 1 and, and our pastor has worked through this very passage with with great attention and with appropriate application but the father has done a number of things number one he's blessed us blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places look at this last expression how did he bless us in christ in christ all the blessings that we have are in christ and what did he, and Not only has he blessed us; he has chosen us. Verse four: Just as he chose us, and look at this next expression: in Him. Earlier said in Christ. In Him, that's in Christ, before the foundation of the world. That's pre-temporal, before time. Why? That we would be holy and blameless before Him. the the, the source of all this is God chose us. That's verse four. Who took the initiative? God chose us. We didn't choose Him. I remember in the '70s, I used to have a bumper sticker that says, "I found Jesus" or something like that. What was it? I found it. That's not it. It's terrible, but but yeah, I, I, the, the whole notion that 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 it, it was well intended, but I, I didn't find anything. It, Jesus found me. You know, he rescued me. And uh, but but Second Thessalonians two, uh, verse thirteen and fourteen, God has chosen you from the beginning. For salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. Who chose you? God chose you. When did he do it? From the beginning. We, we have trouble understanding before the foundation of the world. So when we talk about beginning, that's God's condescension to us because it, it, we, we have trouble grasping before time began. But that's literally when this took place. Second Timothy 1, 8 through 10. God who saved us and called us with a holy calling what not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace which was granted us in christ jesus from all eternity okay first corinthians 1 26 to 31 consider your calling brethren and he goes on to to describe paul does the god has chosen the foolish things of the world and he's not talking about abstract objects he's talking about people foolish people to shame the wise and the weak people of the world to shame those who are strong etc why so that no one verse 29 may boast before god but by his own doing you are in christ jesus in christ jesus by his own doing first thessalonians 1 2 to uh, verses 2 through 4 knowing brethren verse 4 beloved by god all of this we should bear in mind is because he loves his people if you were elected, it's because he loved you. Knowing, beloved, uh, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Acts 13:48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God. And as many as been appointed to eternal life, believe. Who believe? Those who've been appointed. That's another way of describing election. The, the sphere of all of this. We top of page nine is in Christ. He elected us in Christ, that we would be identified with Christ. The time, and I put time in quotation marks because he did this before time. He did this before the foundation of the world. He did this in eternity past. The purpose, why? That we would be holy and blameless before him. That that he would populate heaven with those who are conformed to the image of Christ. Romans 8 also says that. And he predestined us. Remember, I said earlier that, that election is his sovereign decree to save some. And the predestination looks to the purpose for which he saves. It, it talks about the end game, the objective. He predestined us to adoption according to what? The kind intention of his will. Never lose sight of the fact that, that it's God's kindness that entitles us as saved sinners to be adopted into the very family of god we we, we were romans 5 says that, that while we were sinners while we were helpless while we were enemies he saved us all of those things romans 5 6 8 and 10 but uh, but he he predestined us to adoption according to the kind intention of his will why never lose sight of this thing to god's glory to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us that's not synergism that's monergism in the beloved in christ The Son has done all of the things that are necessary to accomplish the saving work. The Father decreed the Son provides the judicial basis of this by substituting Himself in our place. In Him we have redemption through His blood. Redemption talks about being uh, purchased out of a condition of bondage, uh, inescapable bondage apart from from God's direct intervention, His gracious intervention to, to deliver us from slavery to sin and to hell and to Satan. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, We're not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. We've been forgiven. And he's enlightened us. He's made known to us the mystery of his will. And he's provided an inheritance for us. And the work of the Spirit, the the Spirit, it's not specifically addressed in this passage, but who is it that that gives us um, a new heart, who who regenerates us, who who moves us from death to life? That's the work of the Spirit. That's regeneration. That's when John 3, you must be born from above. Literally, that's what what is being said. You must be born from above. You must be born again. You must be reborn. You have to have a new heart. But the Spirit seals us. It's, It's his mark upon us that we belong to God. That, the, that, that we truly have been purchased after having believed you were sealed in him with the holy spirit of promise this is this is god's attestation by the holy spirit that you really belong to him and that no one can snatch you out of the father's hand you've been sealed by the holy spirit and he guarantees the outcome and he's given as a pledge of our inheritance the fact that you were indwelt by the holy spirit and there is no christian who is not indwelt by the holy spirit the fact that the holy spirit indwells you is a pledge it's 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 an indication that this work of salvation which was uh, or decreed in eternity past and effected in time by regeneration will ultimately be consummated in glorification and all of that is evidenced by the fact that the holy spirit lives in you he's a gift he lives in you as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. But this, he, he's the pledge that, that, that you belong to, to God. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, you're not your own. You know that? You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. And so the Holy Spirit guarantees our, our, our destiny. So we'll pick up next week, Lord willing, but I, I want to address some of the objections and concerns about this doctrine of unconditional election. But, but if you want to review these passages in what we teach, our doctrinal statement, and look once again at perhaps this, this treatment of Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, it would be a profitable thing for you to do this week uh, to once again look at the testimony of Scripture. So what have we said? We've said that God in eternity past has ordained, because it pleased him, to set his saving mercies upon certain people. That doesn't mean very few, but certain people, it means not everyone. If he set his saving affections on everyone, all would absolutely be saved. It, it would, it would be, we would be affirming universalism, which we do not affirm because the scripture condemns that. And, and so we don't believe in universalism. We believe that, that there is a wide gate and a narrow gate. And we believe that true Christians inevitably go through the narrow gate. Why do they go through the narrow gate? Because God set his affections on them and the Holy Spirit gave them a new heart and propelled them to choose Jesus. Because you weren't choosing him on your own. And why did he do that? Because it pleased him. And why does it please him? Because he wants to glorify himself. And when you are in heaven, you will will be forever a living testimony for all eternity of the saving mercies of, of the Lord God himself and the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in saving you, preserving you, and glorifying you. So that for all eternity you would be giving adoration to the one who has rescued you and called you to be his own. That's really the implications of the doctrine of election.